the Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Hello, good morning. This is Ken Murray and welcome to the Michael Reed Show. Coming up, Fianna Fáil supports a Sinn Féin bill calling for a rent freeze. We discuss the implications. St. Patrick's Church in Dundalk appeals for donations to their Christmas food and parcel service. We'll have the details. Water quality is deteriorating in our rivers. We discuss how bad things are. The N2 upgrade. Now residents in Raystown RD express their concerns over the project. A new bill proposes to impose fines of €100,000 on those who tell lies in court when making false insurance claims. We talk to Senator Porik Okeja. Young people are being targeted with sweet-flavoured e-cigarettes. The Irish Heart Foundation expressed their concerns. And we'll have the latest from the Garda Loudmead Crime Desk. But first, the issue of soaring rents was discussed in the Dole last night when a Sinn Féin bill proposing a nationwide rent freeze was supported by Fianna Fáil. So the question is, will a nationwide rent freeze come into effect before the general election? And does this move by Fianna Fáil have implications for the life of the current government? Our political correspondent, Sean Defoe, kept an eye on proceedings in the Dáil last night, and he joins me now. Sean, let me begin by saying that Fianna Fáil supported this uh, Sinn Féin bill last night. What did those who contributed from the Fianna Fáil side actually say in the chamber? Well, there was a certain reluctance to their support. Fianna Fáil's backing of a rent freeze is fairly new. Indeed, Micheál Martin only decided that the party would back it during the by-election campaigns when he got out on the doors in the four different constituencies and housing was coming back as the the really, really big issue, be it people who can't get on the property ladder, people who have had to move back in with parents, people who've lost their homes and are now crowding seven or eight of them uh, inside a house, or people who are just trapped in uh, rent and can't afford to save for a a deposit and get a mortgage as well as paying their monthly rents. So Fianna Fáil's Dara O'Brien, Pat Casey and others who have the housing portfolios for the party said that in principle they were supporting this bill because they think the rent pressure zones introduced by the government haven't worked worked, but that it does need some tweaks and that they will allow it to pass at the second stage, which was the debate last night, and then try and make some amendments and changes to it to strengthen it up when it comes into committee stage, which is the next process for it. Well, now, Dara O'Brien of Fianna Fáil was on radio yesterday and he said the bill had a a number of flaws. Did he outline what those flaws are? He he didn't go into a huge amount more detail on the specific flaws of the bill. I mean, there's some concerns, particularly in relation to uh, accidental landlords or or part-time landlords, some who may maybe have one or two homes and who may be forced out of the market by this. There is some concerns from them that not allowing them to make a proper income on top of the different taxes and various charges that they have to pay will mean that you will see an exodus of of certain types of landlords and all that will be left in the market is the more institutional ones, the bigger ones who can afford to take something of a hit on it and that while the cost of living is going up for other people who maybe rely on this as one of their forms of income or rely on it to pay for the mortgage or have no pension indeed and, and this investment, this rental investment is their pension, that the costs on them will end up changing the dynamic 
dynamics of the rental market and indeed meaning less houses there for renters, which obviously would then drive up the pressure on other parts of the market as well. Now, some people might say, was Fianna Fáil genuinely supportive of this bill or was this the Fianna Fáil way of saying to the electorate, oh, we've stood up for people who are struggling to pay rents, we backed the Sinn Féin bill back in December and that this will, if you like, feed into uh, possible support for Fianna Fáil come the general election. Is that one way of looking at this or is Fianna Fáil genuinely uh, of the belief that this bill is good for people who are struggling to pay rents? Well, that was one of the really interesting asset tests of it in that Fianna Fáil's uh, view on this is fairly new, as I mentioned, only in the last couple of weeks. And Sinn Féin were very much using this and very much in the last few days wrapping it up, saying, well, oh, well, go on then. You've had, you supported this government for the last three years in the opposition benches. You could have done something about housing if you wanted to, and you haven't. So now put your money where your mouth is and back what we're saying if you truly believe in it. And I think the, the real asset test of whether or not they do support this and this is not just a way to to appeal to the electorate and say that we would do something on housing is whether or not this bill can progress the rest of the stages. Owen O'Brien was saying in the doll last night that he thinks with opposition support and with him willing to listen to amendments and changes and tweaks to it that this could be in place by Christmas and it could be the Christmas present for renters who are under a lot of pressure to have rents frozen before January starts. However, there's a lot of work to go to get there. There is literally only a week left in all the seasons from tomorrow. Not a huge amount of time to actually go and get this uh, negotiated and get this done. So how much Fianna Fáil cooperates in the passing of this bill and how quickly it can go through, I think will have a big bearing on it. But then, of course, there's obviously the chance that the government will try and hit it with the money message and delay it entirely. Okay, how much of an embarrassment is this for the government? Oh, well, I think the government is used to getting whacked on housing now. You've seen the motion of no confidence in Owen Murphy last week and a lot of criticism indeed from people aimed towards Fianna Fáil saying you sat on your hands last week when there was a vote that could have actually done something and could have changed it and now you're supporting it in something that you know can be blocked by the government quite easily. It doesn't actually have material value if it doesn't need to. So I think it is ramping up the pressure on the government incredibly and they absolutely feel that. They got it during the by-elections as well. Everyone who was out on the doors felt that housing was going to be the big issue and they now know it will be one of, if not the big issue when it comes to the general election. So it's a very difficult position to go for the government. They are trying to stick by their lines in saying, look, we're three years into a five-year plan that it was never going to work overnight. It takes time to build houses. They keep saying we're building more social houses than ever before and that um, that it has to be ramped up. And you will see as well, Fine Gael, as Leo Bradford's come in the door many times, uh, put the blame back on Fianna Fáil, saying that it's Fianna Fáil's fault we're here in the first place. They destroyed the economy and the banks and the housing market when they were in government in the noughties. And this, this is the legacy that we're dealing with now and very slowly ramping up the building of housing because that was always going to take time. Uh, there's been sort of commentary in the newspapers uh, over the last number of days about a possible no-confidence motion again in the government, perhaps this time in Simon Harris. Uh, if uh, somebody was to stand up and say, I propose no confidence in Simon Harris, and the fact that Fine Gael have lost uh, Dara Murphy's uh, seat or vote, so to speak, in the House, and the fact that Francis Fitzgerald's seat uh, has gone to Sinn Féin. How serious of a situation are we in, in terms of how close we are to the collapse of the current government? 
Yeah, quite serious. And I think the general impression around Leinster House is that both the by-elections and the motion of no confidence in Owen Murphy last week significantly shortened the lifetime of this government. There was a lot of thinking that we would see an election in April or May, and indeed both the main party leaders in Micheál Martin and Leo Varadkar have said that that's when they want the date. Leo Varadkar has said May, Micheál Martin keeps on saying he sees Easter next year as the natural end point to the life of this doll. But it may now be taken out of their hands because if you look at the doll arithmetic, Owen Murphy survived the motion no confidence last week, 56 votes to 53. But as you mentioned, you take away one for Darren Murphy, you leave the government on 55 and you add in Thomas Pringle for the opposition parties who was absent from the doll for uh, for a legitimate reason, for an engagement he already had, but would be back for any vote. And suddenly it's 55-54. So all you need is a single TD to flip from the government, maybe one of the three independents who supported them in Michael Larry, Dennis Nocton and Noel Grealish. And the government would effectively collapse or the minister would be gone. There's some arguing benches that you wouldn't need to necessarily collapse the government were a minister to be gone. But effectively, the working majority wouldn't be there uh, and the government says it will go into an election. So a lot of the thinking now is that come, particularly if there's a bad winter in the health service, which all the indicators look as though it's going to be one of the worst winters we've seen for a long time, that when the doll resumes in January or February, um, there will be a motion of no confidence in some Simon Harris or indeed in the government itself, and that could topple it. But of course, we have to remember the thing we haven't been talking about for quite a long time now, and thankfully some will say, is Brexit. And that still hasn't been sorted. It's not going to be sorted until the end of January at the very earliest. And a lot will depend on the UK general election this week and how that goes. But if Brexit does get sorted and tucked away at the end of January, then I think pretty much it's game on from any point after that for a general election, possibly in February or March. Uh, do you get the impression that Fianna Fáil are playing, if you like, a bit of a game here in that they're putting the squeeze on Fine Gael and they will pull the plug, uh, to use a phrase, when the time is right? Yeah, and there had been thinking in Fianna Fáil that you let this government run uh, as much as they can into April or May last year and that the government will do the damage for itself, that mistakes will be made in housing and health, that Leo Varadkar will say something stupid at some point, that another scandal might emerge at the National Children's Hospital or cervical check and more damage will be done and then that becomes the right time to cause an election and to stir more anger towards the government. I think it could well be taken out of their hands with another motion of competence as as we've been uh, saying at the moment. But, you know, gearing towards that time, I think Leo Varadkar may now start to think about whether or not May is the right date for him because we've already seen once Brexit has been taken off the table for the last few weeks everyone has started focusing on all the other issues and people have gone back to talking about the issues we usually debate uh, around a government at the time in health, in housing, in uh, various other bits of legislation that are going through that kind of got shunted to the side through media and political attention because of Brexit and people are remembering well well, actually yeah I'm quite annoyed about that. Oh actually nothing's been done on, on transport in my area for a long time. Oh I can't get school places for for secondary school next year for my child. And and a lot of other issues have bubbled up to the top. So you would wonder um, if Leo Varadkar might now be thinking, if I get a good Brexit deal at the end of January, would I wait uh, while the the rose-tinted glasses of that actually fade uh, and everyone starts to debate other issues before calling a general election? Or do they try and ride the momentum of a good Brexit deal uh, and try and look for another term as Taoiseach for himself? So there's a lot of political calculation going on behind the scenes by all parties because there's a huge amount of pressure on both Leo Varadkar and Micheál Martin to call this general election because if Micheál Martin doesn't win it, he's gone at leader to be the third election that he he won't have won. And uh, it could spell the end of his time as Taoiseach for Leo Varadkar if he calls it wrong. There's a lot of pressure there. Well, finally, and very briefly, 
briefly, Sean, I mean, just on that point, how would you sum up relations between Micheál Martin and Leo Varadkar? Because, you know, he stands up on the dole, he has a go at the government, but at the same time, he's propping up the government. Some people find that rather hypocritical, but that seems to be the strange uh, arrangement between Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael at the moment. How would you sum up, if you like, the relationship between the two leaders at present? I, I think it's pretty frosty at best. I don't think they, they've met person to person in quite a while that they used to under, certainly as Michal Martin used to with Enda Kenny under the confidence supply arrangement. You can see the tension between the two of them in the dolls fighting back and forth with each other, particularly on issues like housing. Uh, they don't seem to like each other all that much and no one is particularly comfortable in the current arrangement. Fianna Fáil certainly aren't. They want to get rid of it, but they can't because they've backed, uh, backed it until the end of Brexit whenever that sorted and would completely undermine everything they've said for the last two years if they did suddenly cut and run until without Brexit being sorted. So the two of them, I think the entire doll, frankly, wants out of this, this current arrangement. They don't see it as working. They would rather not have a confidence supply deal again if it can be avoided. But of course, that's not up to them. It's up to the electorate. Uh, and most people now, they have the posters ready to go and just want to hit election day. OK, Sean Defoe, thanks very much indeed uh, for joining us this morning. And indeed, the next few weeks and months will be rather interesting to see how they unfold and evolve. OK, if you do want to get in touch, by the way, our text number is 086-1800-658. We'll take a break. Ken Murray on LMFM. Now, St. Patrick's Soup Kitchen in Dundalk is calling on people to donate generously as it prepares to hand out close on 400 food hampers this Christmas. What's significant about this appeal is that the soup kitchen is struggling to meet demand, which is a worrying sign in itself. I'm joined on the line right now by Rose Bailey, who runs the kitchen in Dundalk. Good morning, Rose. Hello, Ken. How are you? I'm okay. Now, um, tell us, first of all, how busy the soup kitchen is at present. Well, the soup kitchen, unfortunately, demand has grown from its beginnings uh, over 20 years ago. And we started a food parcel service on a Friday morning because of the demand, uh, families maybe not using the soup kitchen. So every Friday morning for the past three years, we've been giving out a bag of groceries, basic groceries, no luxury items, just basic. And the demand has just gone from 20 to 150. Every week it's between 150, 140, 150, uh, never much less than that. Uh, And the people show... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, coming up to Christmas now... The demand has just risen, especially now we do a Christmas hamper and the demand for that, people who don't use the service during the year just need that little bit of extra help over Christmas. The people showing up, are they people on welfare or are they actually people with jobs? We don't ask. If We just ask if the... The only thing we ask is, please just take one per family. We don't ask people's circumstances. We feel if they're going to join the queue and beg for food... some need in their their life and how much does it cost you per week uh, to run the soup kitchen approximately 500 that's for the food parcels and then the soup kitchen is uh, at the minute we're still working on donations of frozen meals that we've got from authentic food company and Kerry foods but both of them now have ceased trading so when that runs out that'll be another problem for us but at the minute we're still working off that and are you, if you like, taking in enough financial donations to meet your expenditure? Well, obviously, now we just have one collection uh, a year, which is a Churchgate collection on Christmas Eve. 
it's, it's good you mentioned that because people have come to me and said, oh, I give to you every week. There's other collections in the town and they are not connected with St. Patrick's Parish Soup Kitchen. Uh, we just do the one fundraiser per year and then we depend on the good people of Dundalk and surrounding areas and businesses to donate to us. Indeed, um, the Credit Union has come on board in Dundalk and they've sponsored us this, every year or so. But what I'm, I suppose has. what I'm trying to establish here is, I mean, are you taking in enough money to, if you like, cover your costs? Well, you're, we're just running from year to year. That's just the way we're working it. You know, if if we start getting low, we cut back. If we have excess, we just spend it. But, uh, you know, the money's there for the people who need it. So it's our job just to distribute it. Sure. And have you sort of um, learned from the people you talk to, people who come through the doors, that if your service didn't exist, how would these people survive? Yeah, some people, like they, they said to us, your hamper makes the difference of Christmas. Like we had one year a woman was so delighted to get a packet of mince pies. Like many of us have thrown packets of mince pies out at, over Christmas. Like if we're all honest with each other, we do throw out a lot of food. Like I couldn't believe that a packet of mince pies, this, this woman was just so delighted that she was getting a packet of mince pies for Christmas. We, like we, we just take so much for granted when we're doing okay ourselves. We don't think of... People may not buy these things, children's selection boxes. You know, they are a luxury to some families. Sure, sure. Finally, Rose, can I ask you, if people want to get in touch and they do want to donate and help out your service, who or where do they get in touch? Yeah, if they call in to St. Patrick's Parish Office, and it's open Monday to Friday from half nine to five, or indeed they can leave food donations in the back of St. Patrick's or St. Nicholas's Church during Mass times. And I can give you my mobile number. A lot of people ring me, you know, just to say, can I leave something? And I could arrange to meet them. So it's 86 Okay. And if people have missed that, of course, they can listen back to the LMFM podcast and uh, they can uh, get in touch with you. Yeah, okay. and we have a Facebook page as well, St. Patrick's Parish Soup Kitchen Food Parcels. Okay, Rose. Well, listen, we wish you uh, the best of luck with that over the coming weeks and we hope everything goes well for you at uh, the St. Patrick's Soup Kitchen in Dundalk. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. Okay, moving on. Um, You may have read in the papers that more than 3,200 requests for safe accommodation from victims of domestic violence were unable to be met last year, uh, according to Safe Ireland. Now, Safe Ireland is the national agency working to end domestic violence. It said the government continues to starve funding to support services, with on average nine victims seeking refuge being turned away each day. To discuss this further, I'm joined on the line by Katrina Gleeson, who is the Programmes and Communications Manager with Safe Ireland. Uh, Katrina, how bad are things? Well, I suppose, Ken, just to start off, we, we found that over 10,000 women and children and 3,000, nearly 3,000 children came forward to a domestic violence service in 2018. So, you know, as we lead into Christmas, what, what we're knowing is that at the very least, there's thousands of homes across Ireland where women and children don't feel safe. Um, because of abuse from a partner or ex-partner. So, I mean, that's that's quite, they're very stark figures. And unfortunately, Ken, they're also just the tip of the iceberg. We know that um, from prevalence data, studies have been done in Ireland that's representing about 10% of the reality of those experiencing abuse. So it's um, 
it's a bit it's a pretty serious problem that we have and then the very nature of um abuse the very nature of coercive control which is what so many women experience um is that they're they're in a very um dangerous place to reach out so when they do reach out um it's critical that we're able to respond and um unfortunately we're not always able to make, meet the needs um we do work with women when they come forward to try and meet all the needs they have but uh, access to safe accommodation is is an ongoing critical problem. Is domestic violence becoming more prevalent or is it just that, uh, dare I say it, women um, have, if you like, more confidence to leave the family home and knock on your door? Well, it's a good question, Ken. I don't don't have the the magic answer to that. Um, You know, abuse of women um, is, I suppose, it's a historical um, reality. But the... um, the levels that we're seeing in Ireland are they're on par with the with the rest of the world, really. Um, but um, I mean, we're looking at one in three women um, experiencing abuse from their partner in their lifetime, um, and that's that's a very that's a huge figure. And is your uh, a service effectively an accommodation service? Well, I mean, our Safe Ireland is a national umbrella um, social change agency, so we have members from right around the country. So in in Louth there, which we have Dundalk uh, Women's Aid and Drada. Um, uh, women's support services are both uh, members of Safe Ireland so they as you might would be familiar locally provide excellent services that, that include common, refuge accommodation children support services support services for women um, from everything from needing to, uh, if a woman needs support going to court or work, working with around child protection services or support with social welfare or you know anything really that a woman is needing support around to help her increase her, her uh, well-being and safety our services uh, in those areas are equipped to support them. When women are turned away with children, where do they go? I suppose, just to be clear, none of the refuges will actually turn a woman away. Um, they'll work with a woman to try accommodate her somewhere else. Um, and often, we don't have the data on where women go because we, we don't have the opportunity to follow them. But when we've researched women, when they've talked to us about when there wasn't a refuge available, they've in the past they've said um, often they end up staying, having to stay in the abusive situation. Um, uh, which is 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 um, is very uh, concerning. Uh, obviously, Safe Ireland lobbies the government for more funding to provide more services. Uh, what sort of engagement are you getting from government agencies and departments to, if you like, uh, remedy this problem? Well, I suppose it's it's a it's a story of two halves. We've seen 2019, a very historical year in terms of government um, progress around addressing domestic abuse and coercive control. So in, on the 1st of January, we were delighted with the commencement of the Domestic Violence Act, um, a new revision of the Domestic Violence Act, where we have a new offence of um, coercive control, a criminal offence of coercive control, so we're the third country in the world to achieve this, um, along with other very state-of-the-art changes to legislation. And then in March, we had the Istanbul um, Convention, which is the uh, Council of Europe Convention that sets out very very strong commitments for governments in terms of addressing gender-based violence. Um, so the government signed that, uh, ratified that on the on the 8th of March. Um, but on, on the uh, budget day in, in, in 2019, there wasn't a red cent given as an increase um, to the core funding of domestic violence services in Ireland. And at a time when... Um, such commitments are there, it was quite a quite a disappointment. And we're very concerned now because the services, as, as you'll know from working with them, they work um, incredibly hard to respond to needs coming forward and they put that first. 
So we've had we have voluntary boards of management who have to make ongoing decisions and quite invariably not able to make decisions around pay parity and proper terms and conditions because they're not resourced to do so. So we have a concern that the sector, um, the services in the sector are very fragile at the moment and we're finding it harder to retain staff and harder to recruit suitably qualified staff into the sector because the terms and conditions aren't anywhere near where they should be. Sure. And just one final question, very briefly. If women are out there with children and they're in a domestic violent relationship and they need to get out and they need your services, who can they contact? Well, in, you have the numbers there in, in, in Louds for uh, Dundalk Women's Aid and for Drogheda Women's Refuge. So immediately there are two services there. But if, if um, any woman listening wants to go onto the Safe Ireland website, safeireland.ie, there's a Get Help section there and all of the services around the country are listed. So, and information on, on supports available and information on, um, on ways to get support. Now, if you're concerned about your safety going online, if there's somebody that you're of confidence to speak with, that maybe can get the information for you or contact the local service. Okay, we'll leave it there. That's uh, Katrina Gleeson, Programs and Communications Manager with Safe Ireland. We'll take a break. Ken Murray on LMFM. Just to remind you once again, our text number is 086-1800-658. That's 086-1800-658. Now, a new report from the Environmental Protection Agency says our river water quality is deteriorating. This is a worrying development as measures put in place in the past were meant to improve water quality, but clearly they are not working. Shane O'Boyle is one of the authors of the EPA Water Quality in Ireland Report 2013 to 2019 and joins me now. Uh, Shane, we would have a reputation as a country of having uh, nice rivers, clear water, green grass, a nice green environment, but clearly it's a bit of an optical illusion. How bad have things got? Um, well, thanks for uh, having me this morning. Um, well, as you can see from our report, um, what the report finds is that just over half of our surface water, so that's our rivers and lakes and estuaries, are um, in good condition. That, so that means nearly nearly half of our waters um, are failing to meet the objectives that, that have been set out by the EU Water Framework Directive. Now, if you look across Europe, um, the figure's around 40%. So we're still... We're still above, say, the European average, um, but unfortunately what we are seeing now um, um, is, is a decline in, in our surface water quality, and particularly our rivers. They've declined by 5.5% uh, since our last assessment in 2015. So that's, that's a substantial decline over a relatively short period of time. And what that tells us is that pressures are... You know, pressures are increasing on our water environment, and I suppose what we need to do is redouble our efforts. We have made some progress, but unfortunately, we're now sort of heading in the wrong direction, and we need to reverse that. Um, and I suppose just to mention, while the national average is 53%, if we're talking about rivers, 53% um, are in good condition. Um, I just looked at the figures for for Meath and Louth. So for Louth, it's it's actually um, 32% in satisfactory condition. And for me, you're, it's only it's it's actually down as far as seventeen percent in satisfactory condition. So um, those that's are pretty bad, bad, isn't it? That is bad. Yeah, that's bad. So the, you know the, the the majority of your of of the river waters um, are not in good condition. And again, unfortunately, it's it's the decline we're seeing in when we look when we talk about the catchments, which is broader than the county levels. So the Boyne catchment. We've seen a decline in 20 water bodies um, in the Boyne over over the period of the report. 
I suppose the obvious question is, are farmers um, abusing the law or are industrialists pumping more into our waters or are there other factors? Well, I suppose the two main, the main, I suppose the big problem um, is, is nutrient pollution. So that's, that's nutrients like phosphorus and, and nitrogen coming from, coming from um, different sources. Now, the main, the main source, um, the, main, the two main sources would be farming and discharges from, from wastewater treatment. Now, uh, in terms of breaking it down further, nitrogen is a particular issue for, for, for uh, coming from farms, particularly in certain types of soils and in poorly draining soils, you get a, or in freely, sorry, freely draining soils, you get a lot of nitrogen um, leaching from the land and into the water. Whereas uh, for phosphorus, the problem um, is predominantly, uh, well, half and half really, but, but half between urban wastewater and, and farming. So what needs to be done to address this problem? Well, there is a plan in place. There's the, the National River Basin Management uh, Plan. Um, there's a plan put in place every six years under the EU Water Framework Directive. So that was published by the government last year, and that sets out all the actions that are needed under that plan, and there's a there's a, a number of innovative, I suppose, uh, uh, approaches in that plan. One of them is the establishment of the local authority waters program. Um, so that's managed by two local authorities, Kilkenny and Tipperary, nationally, joint, jointly for for the entire country. And um, there are 50 new people um, working in that program, and they're actually working on the ground. They're actually walking along rivers and streams and uh, lakes, trying to identify sources of pollution and identifying what needs to be done to address that. And then in relation to agriculture, which is obviously a big problem, there's another program that has been established, and that's the Agricultural Sustainability Advisory Program. And that's, again, another 30 people that are working with farmers to try and, I suppose, explain some of the issues that, that, that they're coming across and how certain farm activities are, are causing water pollution and what the farmer can do to improve his practices uh, to actually reduce the amount of nutrient that's getting into or, or you know, the river or the lake that's that's close to the farm. Members of the public might ask um, if there's a decline in nutrients in the soil, does this have implications for the quality of the water we drink? Well, I mean, you know, generally speaking, I suppose the the the, the general principle is that the cleaner your source water. So in Ireland. Uh, you know, we get about 80% of our drinking water in terms of source from surface waters, so from either a river or for, from a lake. Um, the other 20% comes from groundwater, so the water beneath our feet. So, so in principle, the cleaner that surface water is, then the less treatment is required actually to get it up to the required standard. And um, so obviously it's important from that point of view that we have clean source water, uh, which means that we have to uh, treat our drinking water um, and uh, less than we would have to otherwise. Um, fish kills don't seem to be as prevalent uh, now as they were, we'll say, in the 1980s. Is that a sign that perhaps farmers have cleaned up their act? Yeah, I mean, fish kills, unfortunately, are, are a sign that something really awful has, has gone wrong with your, your river or your lake. Uh, in the 1980s, 1990s, we would have seen hundreds of fish kills per year. Now, they've, they have thankfully declined over the years. And in 2017, uh, there was only 14 fish kills recorded, which was really positive. Now, we were very disappointed to see the fact that fish kills had increased up to um, 40 um, uh, in 2018. Now, that's 
potentially partly due to, I mean, most people will still remember, we had a very dry, hot summer in 2018. So that would have put ex- fish populations under extra pressure. But I suppose it it potentially points the finger towards what may happen in the future with, with climate change. If we see more extreme weather events, be they, you know, intense rainfall or prolonged drought conditions, it, that's the sort of thing that's actually going to put pressure on our waterways. And it's actually becomes even more important that our waterways are, you know, healthy because the more healthy they are, the more ability they'll have to actually withstand the changes that climate change will bring. Uh, finally, is Europe or Brussels putting any pressure on the government to ensure that we as a nation get our act together uh, to ensure that we have the best water quality in Europe? Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the most of the, the impetus behind this in terms of reporting and, and the work that's been done in identifying what the issues are and the, the, the national plan that I talked about, um, they're being put in place because of the, the EU Water Framework Directive. And um, that, that uh, the implementation of that is, is, um, is assessed by the European Commission. And where Ireland is, is failing to implement various aspects of that um, of that directive then the European Commission will take action and will take Ireland to court if we don't if Ireland doesn't respond uh, uh, doesn't respond in relation to different different aspects that may arise okay we're going to leave it there that's uh, Shane O'Boyle who is one of the authors of the EPA water quality in Ireland report for 2013 to 2018 if you do want to get in touch our text number is 086-1800-658. Ken Murray on LMFM. Now, Marie Cairns will be joining us shortly with your comments uh, coming in on our text number 086-1800-658 very shortly. But as you probably heard on our programme on Monday, residents in Donamoyne, Carrick Macross, have expressed concerns over the lack of consultation over plans to upgrade the N2 between RD and Castle Blaney. Today, we're going to hear the concerns of residents living along the N2 in County Louth, and in particular, those who reside in the Raystown Talonstown area, which is just north of RD. I'm joined on the line now by Eamon King. Eamon, as I said, we heard the concerns of people in Donamoyne, Carrick Macross earlier this week. What are the concerns of residents in Raystown and Talonstown? Hi, uh, Ken. Um, thanks for uh, taking the, the uh, time out to um, talk to me this morning. Um, I suppose the concerns are um, similar to the, the group in, in Donamoyne. Um, there was uh, the project uh, proposal is was a dual carriageway, and uh, it was only at the second consultation that uh, people in the area became aware of of this uh, six new routes that um, the council were are proposing, and uh, it really was lack of awareness. I I think from people it was. If we talk about the communication, the title of the project suggests that the, the uh, didn't suggest that the proposal included a new, a new dual carriageway uh, through the heart of the con- countryside. So essentially, it didn't feature in people's awareness uh, in round one, and only showed up, and they only showed the study areas in the second con- consultation that was held about four or five weeks ago, um, with three with approximately three weeks for people to get their submissions in. So thankfully, um, the residents, uh, the Dunamine Group, um, through consultation with local councillors, managed to get that uh, that uh, 
time frame extended uh, to the 19th of December. Um, so it's essentially what we're saying is we like we fully support the safety improvements on the existing N2, but we're opposed to the different route options suggested at the last uh, public consultation. Um, so our objective is, is to raise awareness in the local community about the six routes proposed and the importance of making a submission and uh, that we're also collaborating with other groups uh, along that area. And I suppose the the other, it's really got to do with the impact. So if greenfield routes are chosen, this will have a major impact on sure. everyone. Sure, but, but just, yeah. I'm just trying to reflect back to Monday when we had people on from Dunamoyne in Carrick yeah. Macross. And, and the picture that's emerging, maybe I'm wrong, is that whether it's TII, that's Transport Infrastructure Ireland and Louth County yeah. Council, maybe I'm wrong, but they seem to be adopting approach of... Um, yeah, let's uh, let's present this and let's tell nobody and we'll go ahead then with our own chosen route and if anybody then complains, they can always come back and say, well, look, you know, we uh, presented the uh, proposals back in December or November 2019. Nobody kicked up hell, so tough. Uh, let's get on with the job. Or am I wrong? I think that's, that would gen- be the general view of, of people um, in the, the areas, in the study area affected. You're right, they're, they're going through a process and it's, it's, uh, they've ticked all the boxes. So in, in essence, they've done nothing wrong. But in relation to communication, if you look at the, the first um, public consultation, only 28 people um, submitted uh, submissions. So that was considering the... the and really, that was down to a lack of awareness of what was going to happen, because at that very first consultation, they only showed a study area. So it was a, a wide area on a map uh, with the N2 route marked on it. And uh, so nothing else. And as I said earlier, the to suggest the, the name of the project didn't suggest that there was any new routes in the proposal. It was an N, the N2 upgrade. And it also re- referenced uh, safety as as one of the the measures as to why they were p- they're considering this uh, proposal. Well, now have you been uh, tick tacking with the residents in Dunamoyne and Carrick Macross, or are you making this, if you like, concern known independent of them? I'm just wondering if you'd get more progress if you collectively clubbed together. Yes, we we're, we definitely are in collaboration with with the Dunamine group. There's a, there's a WhatsApp group that's been set up. Um, we did have meetings in our own area just to raise awareness with people, and uh, but the Dunamine group is where our group representatives are are uh, attending meetings, and uh, we're getting we're getting information on how to. Um, how to fill out the submissions? What's what, what's the so we've got a two-page uh, document which suggests which suggestions on it. So not all the suggestions would be uh, applicable to everyone. But very briefly, Eamon, just yeah. because we're up against the clock here. But uh, I, I mean, what exactly would you like Loud County Council, TII, and Jacobs Engineering to do in order to move this project forward in a way that there's no bad feeling between you and them? What What do you suggest is the best way to move this on? Well, it's uh, from our point of view, it's it's about uh, communication. So what we're trying to do is ensure that everyone 
not only the, the landowners and people's houses who will be affected by, by these projects, but everyone else in the community that may be impacted through, you know, the traditional routes to schools and clubs and churches essentially will be cut off. Um, for everyone to um, to make a submission and uh, ensure ensure that we have a voice in in the next phase of of the project. So, uh, what we're saying is we want to engage with the process, but we want to make sure as many people as possible are engaged in that process. Okay, well, look, it's something we'll be keeping an eye and an ear on in the coming months. So uh, we wish you well with that. So Eamon King from the Raystown and Talonstown area of Midloud, thanks very much indeed for joining us. Now, you've been busy on the phones and Marie Cairns joins me in studio. Uh, What are people saying, Marie? Good morning, Ken, and good morning to everybody listening in. Lots in touch in relation to the rent freeze and I suppose the politics around that. Raymond feels it will never get through the doll, this this proposed bill. When you look at how many government TDs are landlords, Emmett got in touch via our Facebook page and Emmett says that he's coming from a different point of view. Stopping rent increases will make houses become more scarce. If I own a house and I want to increase the rent by the 4% allowed, I should be allowed to do it. A politician telling me what I can do with my own property won't wash. So that's his thoughts. Tommy from Dundalk. Fianna Fáil want to have their cake and eat it too. They could have got rid of Owen Murphy last week, but they deliberately chose not to. I'm sick of hearing at this stage that they are holding on because of Brexit. Theresa from County Meath phoned in. Just wondering, Ken, I'm very puzzled to see how Minister Murphy and Minister Harris can defend their positions in housing and health. Are they so silly that they can't see what is going on? My goodness me, coming up to Christmas, it's so tough to see people on the streets. And she says that when she saw that little boy eating dinner from cardboard on the streets, that was the last straw for her. her. And she says it's disgraceful what is going on. Sean from Drogheda says that he's a Fianna Fáil supporter and he's not happy with Fianna Fáil's position in propping up Fine Gael. They have sacrificed too much for the arrangement, he feels. And now it's time for Fianna Fáil to come back and re-identify itself. Well, that's the way the numbers <laughs> fell. I mean, that's yes. the arrangement that fell as arising from the last election in 2016. That's right. They made, or as there wouldn't have been a government formed. Correct, correct. Geraldine from Balbriggan, nobody wanted an election, Ken, when the Brexit negotiations were going on. It was imperative that the government here was in a strong position to present Ireland's case. So I believe the Fianna Fáil were right to keep up their support because of Brexit. And there's still a lot to play out on that, says Geraldine. Uh, regarding your interview with Rose uh, from the soup kitchen in Dundalk, uh, you take so much for granted, Ken. And this is comes in from Fiona, who phoned in. Uh, when you hear that there are people who need to turn to a soup kitchen to literally put food on their table. It certainly puts things in perspective. I want to say thank you to the volunteers in so many areas who help out. 
and try to assist others. Sure. Uh, Kate from Drogheda says, Ken, listening into your interview with Safe Ireland, terrible to think that there are not enough safe houses in Ireland for women seeking places. The last thing you want is for a woman to have to stay in a home if she's worried about being attacked. And Kate says that that really came as a shock to her. Yeah, and it's a growing problem, it would appear, yes. Kevin was in touch. He was listening to the comments yesterday in relation to the farmers and the, the protests. Well, the IFA the protests, yeah. Yes. And uh, he wasn't too happy with the negative comments that were read out from listeners. Uh, Kevin says that the farming community is on its knees at the moment. The farmers are a link in the chain Beef prices are below par and everyone in the chain is affected from your local butcher, grocery shops, etc. They have to do something to change this. <coughs> Rory was also listening into the comments in relation to pensions. And remember, we had that, that text in from the pensioner who was thrilled with his, his extra money. But um, Rory says that he's very disappointed we haven't heard from any left wing parties, the Labour down to Sinn Féin, over the state pensions that the ministers that were in power when the downfall came are all retired with their big pensions. And he's wondering, are elderly people expected to work the same as an 18-year-old? There needs to be a mass movement protest to reverse the decision for for people to have to work longer and not be eligible for the pension until later in life. There is a general election coming up and Rory feels that next to housing, this is going to be a big issue on the doorsteps. So that's a flavour of some of them, Ken. And uh, a gentleman called Jack, he doesn't say where he's from, he made a very valid point. He said if the EPA, that's the Environmental Protection Agency, would get up and do something instead of soundbite and new offices, everybody talks about going green. But the more veg you grow, the more use of pesticides and so rivers and land end up being polluted. That's a very good and valid point. I should have actually put that to uh, Shane O'Boyle earlier on. The uh, continued use of pesticides and also the damage it is doing to the bee population. So that is an ongoing issue. So thanks very much for getting in touch, Jack. If you do want to get in touch with us, our text number is 086-1800-658. Thank you, Marie. Keep those comments coming. And uh, we have more people to talk to. In the meantime, we'll take a break. Ken Murray on LMFM. If you do want to get in touch, our text numbers are 086-1800-658. Please do get in touch. Now, it's that time of the week where we take a look at the main stories dominating the pages of our local newspapers in the Loudmead area. Marie Cairns joins me again in studio. So, Marie, what's uh, what's the big story in the Drogheda Independent this week? Well, Ken, the Drogheda Independent is leading with the death of local businessman Malachy McCluskey under the heading Malachy's Legacy of Love for His Hometown. In a lovely tribute piece, the paper's editor, Hubert Murphy, writes that the founder of Boyne Valley Foods was an entrepreneur ahead of his time who built the business from nothing to become one of the world's leaders now operating in 30 countries. And also then away from the hustle and bustle of big business, Malachy helped a lot of charities and as president of the Rotary Club, he played a part in raising over 100,000 to build a hospital in Africa. And the coverage spreads over 
two pages inside the paper. A great businessman, I might add, and uh, a big employer in the Drogheda area, so Ariesde Gareva Adam. What's in the Mead Chronicle this week? The Chronicle is actually leading with the story that we covered on the show yesterday regarding Deputy Pablo Tobin's claim that the plan to review the Dublin to Navan rail line by Finn Gale is nothing more than a political stunt, so they're covering that also. Uh, today, inside the paper, there's good coverage of the concerns raised at the Navan Joint Policing Committee, which was attended by the Garda Commissioner Drew Harris, with one of the main issues raised being the need for more Gardaí. And Mr Harris told the meeting that there are plans to recruit more Gardaí and he would be taking a lot of Gardaí away from administrative roles and concentrating on increasing the number of Gardaí on the street. So hopefully we'll see some of those around the Meath area. Sure, and I believe the St. Patrick's Soup Kitchen is also making the news in the Dundalk Democrat. That's right, um, Ken. Inside the paper on page three, uh, there's an interesting story about students at St. Vincent's School in Dundalk who decided to take part in a campaign to reduce, reuse and recycle clothes in the run-up to the Christmas frenzy. The No Buy November scheme encouraged people to buy and consume less products, in particular non-essential items, and made people think you know, more about their spending. So I suppose that was a good initiative the, the month before everybody goes absolutely mad on spending sure. for Christmas. And staying uh, in Dundalk, what's uh, what's making the front pages of the Argus? Insanity plea in Yazuki murder trial is the page one story of the Argus, which reports that a 20-year-old man has pleaded not guilty to murdering a Japanese national in Dundalk nearly two years ago by reason of insanity. Mohammed Mori of No Fixed Abode is charged with murdering Yazuki Sasaki, aged 24, at Long Avenue, Dundalk, on January 3rd, 2018. The trial is being held, of course, at the moment in the Central Criminal Court. Uh, the issue of homelessness and uh, people having nowhere to sleep, basically, over the Christmas period is also making the news in the Dundalk Leader. That's right. Uh, that's the lead on the Dundalk Leader today. Homeless in need of help at Christmas is the headline of the lead story. And uh, the Dundalk Simon community is asking people to support those less fortunate this Christmas in any way that they can as they prepare for their busiest time of year. Pamela O'Hare from the Simon community in Dundalk said that although their services are busy all year round, December in particular sees an increase in the number of cases they tend to. We have 30 beds in our hostel and they are pretty much full all year round. You get an odd weekend where there may be a spare bed or two but in general she says we are full up every night. So it's a particularly busy time and any donations are gratefully accepted again. Okay, well, that's a, a, a nice summary of what's happening on the, uh, of what's been covered on the front pages of the papers in the Loudmead area this week. And of course, I always say go out and buy your local paper and support local journalism. Okay, Marie, that's it for the Thank moment. You. There. Thank you very much. I uh, just got a text in there. And uh, somebody said there that uh, in relation to the submissions for the N2RD to Castle Blaney upgrade, every member in a house can fill out a form, children and all. It is not clear or it's need. It's not just one per household. People need to fill out these forms because the more submissions that go in, the better. And also the forms need to be submitted before the 19th of December. So thanks to Carol. Carol doesn't give us her second name or indeed where she's living, but a uh, bit of a good advice there for people who have concerns about the the N2 upgrade between RD and Castle Blaney. Now, moving on, we have um, 
we have an announcement from the Irish Heart Foundation and indeed the Irish Cancer Society. They have expressed their concerns uh, about e-cigarettes and what they're saying is e-cigarette companies are not telling the truth when they claim that sweet flavours such as candy floss and bubble gum are aimed at adults rather than children. Now this is according to research uh, amongst Irish teenagers commissioned by the Irish Cancer Society and Irish Heart Foundation and launched by the Minister uh, for Health earlier this week, Simon Harris. Well to discuss this further I'm joined on the line now by Chris Macy of the Irish Heart Foundation. Uh, Good morning Chris. Good morning Ken. Uh, Thanks for taking the call. Um, How much of a concern is this for the Irish Heart Foundation and indeed the Irish Cancer Society? Uh, This is a huge concern. Um, I suppose uh, if you go back um, to uh, 20-25 years ago, 41% of children in Ireland smoked. Uh, We've made a huge effort in this country to address that and it's down, at last count, it was down to around 12%. And what we're concerned about here is that, uh, you know, a whole new generation of Irish children could become addicted to nicotine, uh, you know, really without anyone taking uh, the action that's needed. So the Minister for Health, Simon Harris, has um, is introducing legislation to, to ban um, um, the sale of e-cigarettes to under-18s. Uh, but, you know, we, we, we feel that a lot more is needed, particularly in terms of these uh, uh, flavours that are clearly uh, aimed at uh, young people and children um, and also in terms of advertising. Uh, in America, um, the, the, I suppose, uh, surreptitious promotion of e-cigarettes and flavoured e-cigarettes, particularly on social media, has resulted in what the Surgeon General there has called a youth epidemic uh, of e-cigarette use. We don't know. Uh, we, we've got figures going back to 2015 in this country when uh, 24.7% of 15 to 17-year-olds said they tried e-cigarettes, 11% uh, had used them in the in the last uh, 30 days, and 6.8% were daily users. Now, we don't have figures, but uh, the evidence that, that we're seeing, um, uh, you know, I talked to my own teenage children, uh, e-cigarette use among teenagers is rife. We, we've got a, a youth advisory panel in the Irish Heart Foundation that goes across all social um, uh, uh, you know, groups and, and all geographical areas. And again, they're saying this widespread use among teenagers of uh, e-cigarettes that are seen as very cool, very trendy, and they're being promoted on Instagram uh, um, in, 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 a, in a way that uh, their parents just aren't seeing. So yes, we're very, very concerned about this. Chris, I don't smoke. I've never smoked a cigarette in my life, so I I don't know anything about e-cigarettes, to be pretty uh, honest with you. So these e-cigarettes, they were obviously introduced, as you like, as a substitute to actual cigarettes. I mean, if if somebody buys an e-cigarette, what exactly are they smoking? Well, I mean, I I suppose what we have to say, and it's really important to say this, that uh, we do accept that there's a harm reduction uh, uh, potential, a a very significant one. And there's there's evidence that shows that. that, So, so, you know, long term um, uh, smokers who have tried every other way to quit. Uh, you know, that that it is very uh, much uh, something that can help people quit. I, I mean, what, what you're looking at here is 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 uh, ordinary cigarettes kill half the people who use them. So anything has got to be basically better than that. And so there is a big harm reduction element to that. But it's, it's for those long-term hardened smokers. The divide here, what we have to try and achieve here is to is to help those smokers quit. 80% of smokers in Ireland uh, uh, want to quit, uh, but also at the same time uh, help the, um, uh, you know, the, the, 
um, young people who aren't addicted, who haven't grown up with people smoking around them, who for for them, you know, smoking isn't a normal thing, uh, that, that, that we don't allow them to become addicted to nicotine. Is it time for the Irish Heart Foundation and the Irish Cancer Society to lobby the Department of Education to, if you like, put an item or a segment into the curriculum that basically warns teenagers about the dangers of e-cigarettes and what they can lead to? I think that would be that would be good education in this area is always good. Um, what we're waiting for here and what takes a long time uh, in terms of uh, you know any new product is the evidence to say whether something's good or something's bad. And we don't know the extent to which e-cigarettes uh, may be a, a force for good or a force uh, for harm generally in society. Uh, but certainly for, for young people, there is absolutely no reason why anyone uh, should want to or should become addicted uh, to nicotine. Uh, you know, it, it opens up a whole uh, uh, range of, of, you know, of, of horrendous possibilities, really. And yes, education, I, I, I think that's a very good idea. I think it would be a really uh, um, good thing to do. Um, but as I say, I suppose we're learning every day and every month there's new research coming out. So it's a very fluid situation in terms to exactly what the nature of the dangers are. Uh, but certainly an education programme that shows people that these things can't do them any good and can only potentially do them harm uh, would be good. Ireland was the first country in the world to ban smoking in the workplace and there's been, a, a, I suppose, a PR drive to move people away from cigarettes and highlight the dangers. Do you think it's, it's working particularly with young people or is the emergence of the e-cigarette reversing all the uh, progress that has been made? Well, I, as I said before, you know, we've we've done an incredible job as a nation uh, to reduce our youth smoking rate over the last 20, 25 years. As I say, from down from 41% uh, in 1998 uh, to, um, uh, to to 12% uh, in 2018. Um, so, I mean, you know, that's that's really good. What, what we're really concerned about here is that all these all those gains will now be lost uh, by some very slick and some very um, shady uh, marketing tactics, mainly online. But I mean, it's still allowed. You can advertise e-cigarettes on billboards, and a point of sale in shops. I mean, that's just uh, ridiculous as far as we're concerned. And, and children have to be predict- protected from this addiction. Uh, and we're not doing enough at the moment. I have to say the Minister for Health, Simon Harris, has um, shown real leadership in this area. You know, he's banning the sale of them. He wants to extend the the advertising ban, and he's got his officials uh, looking into uh, how we might um, uh, ban um, the flavours. I mean, they've banned them in places like New York. Even Donald Trump uh, has said uh, that the states generally might have to ban them. And... uh, so you know we're 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 trying to um encourage him as much as we can uh, to take that further action. Well, we just got a text in saying this country's a joke giving out about e-smokes. If they went into Moore Street in Dublin, they would see kids buying the smokes for four euro a pack and there's loads of kids doing it. I mean, is it time for either the Gardaí or the government or the Department of Health to simply get tough and be more vigilant and to either uh, ban the sale of cigarettes to youngsters or indeed ban the sale of e-cigarettes as well? Well, uh, I mean, um, they are banning them. Uh, uh, You know, at the moment, you can uh, an under eighteen can legitimately buy e-cigarettes. There's no law against it. 
Um, obviously, that's not the same for cigarettes, um, uh, but, you know, enforcement in that area is really important. And um, the, the guards and the revenue commissioners in terms of smuggled cigarettes have been doing a good job. We've got down our smuggling rate down to roughly uh, around uh, the EU average, despite the fact that cigarettes here are much more expensive than in other countries. Um, so, you know, uh, I, and I know there's a new strategy that the revenue commissioners have. So, yeah, we've got to invest in that area. We've got to put more money, more resources into it. It's really important. There's no point in um, b- banning the sale of anything uh, to children if they can still get their hands on it. And that is a, a vital component of, of, of tackling this. Your main concern is youngsters getting addicted. Is there any evidence to show that hospitals are being, if you like, clogged, if there's a, a pun in there somewhere, are being clogged up with youngsters going in, uh, complaining of issues with their lungs or their breathing or addiction or all the problems that go with purchasing cigarettes? In terms of cigarettes or e-cigarettes? Well, cigarettes and e-cigarettes, yeah. I mean, um, I suppose the, 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 the thing with smoking is it doesn't, um, uh, it doesn't kill you immediately. Um, uh, you know, it, it takes time, but it takes years and years off your life. And, um, you know, the evidence shows that one in two smokers will eventually uh, be killed by, um, by the addiction. Um, uh, as regards e-cigarettes, uh, again, you know, there's there's been hospitalizations in um, in the U.S., but uh, you know that 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 isn't necessarily uh, uh, relating to nicotine uh, e-cigarettes, and you know, there's studies going on there. Uh, we we wouldn't make a great point about that. Um, you know, lots of people are trying to say we need to ban e-cigarettes on the basis of what's happening in America, but uh, that would be um, that would be way too early to even consider. Um, you know, as I say, that, that there is still a, um, a harm reduction element uh, to e-cigarettes sure. that can and, save lives. And, and so, I mean, you know, uh, um, children going into hospital um, uh, related to that, no, it, you know, it takes time for these uh, uh, diseases uh, relating to smoking. Uh, to develop, um, and but you know, it's uh, there, there's no doubt that in, in in the end, it's going to get half of you. Sure. So the the negative effects are long term. Final question, Chris: uh, How uh, important is it for parents to be vigilant with their young son and daughter if they think uh, their children are smoking e-cigarettes? The, you know, um, the important I mean, role that I, parents need to play here. I'm in this boat myself. I have a 14 year old, a 17 year old, and a 20 year old. Uh, it's really hard to know what uh, what's being marketed at them surreptitiously online. It's hard to know, uh, you know, what they're doing uh, when they go out. You know, back in back when I was young, you know, if you had a cigarette uh, uh, as a teenager when you went out, you'd buy a packet of mints and and, and all of that. Um, and I think it's much harder with e-cigarettes to, um, you know, to 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 to, to smell the breath and uh, and and uh, you know know what's going on. I mean, what what we've what we're hearing a lot of uh, a lot of young people are saying to us, including my own children, that everyone's doing it but not me. Um, and um, I suppose all you can do is is be as vigilant as you can. Tell them not to do it. You know, explain the dangers. Do everything. Um, possible because um, it's not uh, nicotine addiction is uh, is not something anyone would wish on 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 anyone's children okay uh, and we've got to protect against it all right we're going to leave it there that's uh, chris macy of the irish heart foundation more to come we'll take a break ken murray on lmfm as i said keep those texts coming on 086-1800-658 deirdre butler in kells has been on to us to say these e-cigarettes should be banned they are a health 
hazard. Now, you probably don't need me to remind you that there is a lot of chancers out there when it comes to insurance fraud. Fraudsters are lying their way through court to effectively get easy money for nothing, and you and I are paying for this with increased insurance premia each year. Independent Senator Porico Keja feels the time has come to punish those who don't tell the truth in court and is introducing a new perjury bill in the Oireachtas with the aim of putting manners on those who deliberately mislead the courts. Uh, dare I say it, Porik Falchorod, how bad is the situation when it comes to people telling lies in court when it comes to insurance claims? Well, good morning, Ken, and, and Goramahagat. Uh, it's, it's, it's quite significant. Quite, I must say at the beginning, Ken, though, that a, a lot of people, the vast majority of people who are injured and uh, who do make a claim are doing it justifiably so and they have reason for doing so. But there are a small number of people who are incredibly hogging the system and, quite frankly, are getting away scot-free with it. Uh, you have a, quite, This has been reported in the media and so on, that you have a small number of people and they have a, a multitude of claims. They go from one claim to another. That's the, that's the main purpose of this, to clean up the whole situation with regards to evidence. And um, really what we're doing, uh, uh, Ken, this is really a returned piece of legislation because it means that on a summary offence, which is normally uh, an offence that's uh, not before a judge and jury, um, and it's normally smaller offences, but uh, there's a fine, I think, up to 10,000 euros and the summary fine and up to one year in prison. But if it's an indictable offence, in other words, a pretty serious situation, one could get up to 10 years in prison where blatantly telling lies in court and uh, uh, changing the course of justice as a result. Um, do you think that trying to prove perjury would be difficult? Because somebody could go in and say uh, that they fell and they broke their leg and they're making a claim for €10,000, whatever, and they might have their case dismissed, but it doesn't necessarily mean they told a lie. They just didn't put up, if you like, a convincing argument in court. Isn't that one of the, the difficulties this type of bill could create? Well, again, that's a great question because that was one of the key areas we had to address. Uh, and we have in there, in the, in the legislation, the bill, a definition of perjury. So what, what is perjury? Uh, so it's knowingly making a false statement that's material, so it's got to be significant, that changes the course or affects the course of, of justice or a decision made in court. So they're the three elements that needs to be proven. Also, uh, you cannot say, oh, such and such committed perjury, and, and it, it's kind of on a whim that somebody says it. Uh, perjury has to be corroborated. In other words, there has to be um, a separate independent support to say somebody did actually tell lies. So there is a defense there for somebody who's accused of telling lies and actually didn't do so. Well, now, you're talking about fines, I think, of €100,000. In all likelihood, the person who's making a false claim in a court is likely to be somebody who isn't very wealthy, uh, wouldn't have €100,000 to pay to the courts in the event of a fine being struck down or being implemented by a judge. Isn't the reality that uh, if somebody is fined in courts for perjury, the state is not going to get the money? In, in some cases, like any 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 uh, piece of criminal legislation, there are people who commit crimes and, quite frankly, do not have the money for that. But there are other people who do. But also, the second part of the sanction is potentially up to 10 years imprisonment. So it's very, very, very significant. Like, for example, in all, all of the, uh, all the uh, developed countries around the world, they've got legislation on perjury. They have it in the UK. They have it just up the road in Northern Ireland. 
for almost 100 years now. And in that situation, Northern Ireland, if, if you're telling lies that are materially in Northern Ireland and that are the court of justice, you can get up to seven years imprisonment. We decided to go for 10 years to part of the line with other uh, uh, pieces of criminal legislation in the South. Well, now, I've spent enough years in the courts as a reporter and I've seen situations where people chance their arm in courts. And what has always struck me is that judges just do not seem to be tuned in to the real world, that they don't impose sufficient fines to discourage people from chancing their arm next time round. I mean, shouldn't uh, the political system put measures in place to ensure that judges are a bit more severe on people who waste court and guard the time and indeed insurance companies' time uh, and that the judges should actually be more tuned into this? Uh, what, you, what you raised there is a, is a big issue, but it's not just a, a matter of putting the blame on judges. I've been a, a solicitor uh, for quite a number of years at my own practice and I've been in and out of courts uh, quite frequently as well. And uh, in many of the cases, the judge has to deal with what's in front of him or her in a particular situation. And the problem they do have is all there is, is there's no there's no uh, statute in relation to perjury, so that there is nothing to give them guidelines or rulings in relation to evidence in relation to perjury. Now, for the first time in our history, we're hopefully going to have that situation, and that's going to clean up. That's going to reduce the number of people who'll be actually making claims in court because they know they're going to stand over it. They know they're going to be robustly tested on it, and also uh, it's going to make, I suppose, solicitors and and and, and medics and doctors aware. Hold on here a second now. We just got to be absolutely very, very, very careful before we say to somebody, "Look, you can go and do this and go and do that." You have to be aware. They make they make their clients very, very much aware of the repercussions if they're not in the truth, the whole truth, but nothing but the truth. So I believe okay. uh, that is actually going to reduce the number of court ca- of cases coming in front of judges. Yeah. Finally, and very, very briefly, will this uh, proposal by you become law, or is, will it have to work its way through the system? And if there's a general election, does it get lost in the fog somewhere? Yeah. Yeah. I hope it will become law. Um, and quite frankly, if it's gone through the Senate already. It's got this, I've got the support of Fine Gael, the government, of Fianna Fáil and uh, Sinn Féin for this uh, piece of legislation. It's going through the doll uh, this evening, actually, but uh, that's stage two. There are three more stages, and hopefully it will get through before uh, before there is a general election. I cannot say, obviously, but I, I, I would be pretty optimistic that it will. And if not, I'm pretty certain that the next government will take it up and, sure. and run on from there with it. OK, we're going to have to leave it there, Park, because uh, we're up against the clock. So, Mayhan Far, August Gurramahagut, and uh, our sincere apologies there about the, uh, the quality of the line there. Park was on the road and pulled in to take our call. OK, we've more to come. We'll take a break. Ken Murray on LMFM. OK, we'll go through some of your comments on the phone line and indeed the text machine. And I'm joined once again in studio by Marie Cairn. So, Marie, what are the people saying? Very busy this morning, Ken, on the phone lines and lots of people in touch to via our Facebook page, which is great. But Geraldine was listening in to your interview just about the quality of our rivers and the concern about that, and particularly to the Louthmead area, uh, very poor results there. And she says that um, 
just as an aside that uh, she lives in the Drogheda area and she's putting in a new fish tank and she got the water tested and it's showing in the red with high levels of nitrate. She also tested fresh sample from a tap and it showed higher levels. It's extremely worrying because it can cause problems and um, she says that this is a concern and it's not good to be hearing that our rivers are not in good condition. Uh, Just on the N2 story, Ken, that we've been covering about the, the road there and the, the route options. Joanne uh, contacted us to say that people really need, need to get the information themselves and be familiar with what is being proposed. She says that some communities will be uh, essentially split down the middle and that it's imperative that people check the plans and see if their particular area is affected that a lot of people just didn't realise and she wanted to thank... Uh, well, that's the, the issue that the Donamoyne residents and the Raystown and Tallinnstown residents um, are concerned about is that people don't know. There's a an awareness and information problem here. That's right. Just, we were talking about um, dog fouling um, earlier in the week, uh, Ken, one of the topics that, that we were discussing uh, with Rory Murakou from Sinn Féin just in relation to their bill about sure, yeah. making it mandatory for... Uh, people who are out walking their dogs to, to carry, carry bags, bags. Yeah. and a listener got in touch to say that maybe people, you, you may not be able to take a photo of a person and put it up on social media or spread the word because of data protection but maybe you could take a picture of the dogs uh, and their owners could be identified via <laughs> the dogs that maybe there should be a campaign I have a vision started. in my head of Johnny and Mary saying no that's not my dog that's the one down the street <laughs> and I don't know if I'd like to see my social media full of dogs uh, doing their business either <laughs> but um, the listener also goes on to say on, and obviously it's Louisa who was in touch because it is an issue on a more serious note that really does annoy her as it does so many people but she points out that like the bags only cost uh, so little sure, and that there really <clears> is <throat> no excuse anymore and that she says that when she is out and about walking and if she does see someone not picking up, that she will tap them on the shoulder. But of course, Ken, as you well know, that's not always advisable. No, we, we no. We have had listeners who've been in touch with us who say, you know, I do this and it's not good because they there's a confrontation. Yes, there's a negative reaction. Well. Yeah, yeah, it's not yeah. very well received. Um, we've been talking a lot about the FAI and I know we're going to An be talking... An ongoing story. That's yes. right. I know we're going to be talking some more about that tomorrow. But um, John was in touch to say that he can't believe that the committee are not going before the Oireachtas Committee. You know that special emergency meeting that we we spoke to, uh, Deputy Fergus O'Dowd, today and feels that at this stage that the Football Association of Ireland should be doing everything to bring people on side and to answer any questions you would think that, yes. that need to be asked. You would think that. It's it as if the FAI was giving the Oireachtas the two fingers. Now, there may be valid reasons, but it just seems strange that they turned down an invite at a time of crisis, and the government has indicated that it is prepared to make €2 million Euro available uh, to clubs around the country, albeit they're going to bypass the FAI, but you would think that for the, uh, the betterment and the development of soccer that the FAI would cooperate. On um, the topic about, and I know I mentioned it this morning, was the lead story in the Mead Chronicle, and we covered it yesterday in relation to um, the NAV and Dublin rail line. And an ongoing a, story. Whether yeah. it's an election ploy, this announcement of the review or not. But Kay was in touch, and she was saying that Fianna Fáil are also putting out information 
about uh, the railway line and she says that um, that it has been promised by so many TDs of different parties and she says that at the end of the day they are pretending to show concern for people sitting in the cars for hours a day but until they actually deliver mm. that you really can only take that as lip service. I can't see it happening for a long time and I think the point we made yesterday was that because the government invested so much money in the development of the M3 motorway the money from the tolls has to go back to the state until that road is paid off and then and maybe then and it could be 15-20 years down the line maybe the viability of the Dublin Navin rail line will be looked at again. Rachel phoned in. Finally, the last one. Rachel phoned in. She was listening to, I read out the comment from the listener that was, remember, delayed going to the hospital that was travelling to the Matter Hospital and was really sympathising with all those people. That and it was taking her all day to get there. That's yes. right. And Rachel says it really struck a chord <coughs> with her that she has to do that every single day and it's driving her absolutely round the bend. Yes, uh, well, it took me two hours to get home from uh, Dublin to Delic yesterday evening, so I know the feeling, Rachel. Anyway, thanks to Marie who produced this morning. Thanks to uh, Maggie McGuire as well. Paul McGenna on sound and myself Ken Murray. Good morning I'll talk to you again tomorrow and Sinead Brazel is next. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us email now michael at lmfm.ie Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 